Today's guest is Rick Allen Ross. Rick is a cult expert who has studied, documented, testified against, and even deprogrammed people over the past 30 years. These include Branch Davidians during the Waco incident, and he has even been profiled on 48 Hours, where one of his deprogrammings was featured. I really hope you enjoyed this interview with such a preeminent cult expert. And I bring to you Rick Ross. Structured. Hey, thanks for coming on, Rick. Well, thank you. Now, I want to ask for one question right off the gate, and it might be a completely obvious question, but I like to ask those. What is a cult versus a cult of personality? Well, I basically like to go with the definition of a cult or the nucleus for a definition of a cult as of first laid out by Lifton, uh, right? Robert J. Lifton. And Lifton offered three core characteristics for a destructive cult. One is that it is a personality-driven group and that the leader, a charismatic leader, becomes an object of worship. Second, that the leader uses thought reform, an extreme form of persuasion or coercive persuasion, to gain undue influence and control over his or her followers. And then finally, if it's a destructive cult, the the influence that is gained uh, through that thought reform program is then used to exploit and take advantage of and ultimately do damage to the followers. And that varies by degree from group to group. So you look at those three core characteristics, an absolute totalitarian leader uh, that is the defining element and driving force of the group, that has become an object of worship to the use of thought reform, coercive persuasion and influence techniques to gain undue influence. And then finally, three, that having done that, the leader uses it to exploit and do damage to his or her followers. And you've got a destructive cult. Okay, now a cult of personality, then I'm going to say I'm going to go to go on to scale because. I consider Kim Jong-un to be the leader of the largest cult in the world. I think that's a fair assessment. The uh, North Korea is included in the cult education uh, database at culteducation.com. I've been following it for a long time. And there's a whole mythos, a religious spiritual belief system in North Korea that underpins the power of the great leader, the dear leader, and that's what he relies on. I mean, he's really regarded as a godlike individual. And I think Adolf Hitler was another example of a of a cult, a political cult that gained total power over Germany. And I think Mussolini was a personality cult also, but just not as extensive and as destructive as Adolf Hitler. Part of what led me down this path is I know you're very familiar with uh, Leah Remini and Scientology. Obviously, you've had run-ins with Scientology. When she was discussing the auditing program, it's it rang in my head with some descriptions of North Korea and also Cuba, of all places, because I, I took care of Cuban refugees. And in both of these places, 
they're always going to your neighbors or your peers and they're asking them, hey, what did Eric do last Friday? And then they go ask you, Eric, what did you do last Friday? And you're always under threat that if I don't say what I did on Friday, that my neighbor might narc me out or my spouse or something else. Have you yeah, seen those parallels? Is, that, that is what Lifton calls, and Robert J. Lifton, a psychiatrist, wrote a book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, and it's based on interviews with prisoners of war in North Korean POW camps in the late 50s. And Lifton was trying to figure out how they broke people down. And Edgar Schein also wrote a book, a professor at MIT, about coercive persuasion. And both these books came out in the early 60s, and they really delineate how these people uh, that ran re-education camps uh, in China and also uh, how the North Koreans could break people down, change their, their mindset, manipulate them. And in Lifton's book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, in chapter 22, he gives eight core criteria to identify a thought reform program. And one of them is the cult of confession. And that is basically everything that you think, everything you feel is uh, not yours. You have no right to privacy. There must be full disclosure to the authority. Uh, and and there is no there are no boundaries. And so that's what uh, Scientology does in auditing, because basically it's they call it spiritual counseling. But you're holding two cans that are a crude, you know, piece of a, a lie detector machine, you know, a galvanic response measuring apparatus. And they're they're able to see on the meter if you're nervous. If you're if you're if you've got nervous tension and perspiration in your hands and then they can drill down in whatever makes you nervous. So they ask you questions. They interrogate you, I would say. And then and then you disclose things and they put it into your folder and they own own that information and you sign releases about it. And then, of course, there are Scientologists who will do, you know, ethic reports or ethics reports on you. And they will report to the hierarchy, you know, this is what Eric said. This is what Eric did. Uh, and that also goes into your folder. And an ethics officer will police you regarding that. Now, on cults, too, I had another parallel because I've had a guest on who was almost turned out as a prostitute. She was not. But it seems to me there's a lot of parallels between a cult leader and a pimp. Yeah, I think so. There are a lot of parallels between a cult leader and a domestic um, controlling abusive relationship. I mean, what you have is social isolation. You have uh, a constant gaslighting or manipulation where you're made to feel bad about yourself. You're made to feel dependent uh, there's a kind of learned helplessness. It's been described by battered women and by former cult members. So you feel broken. You feel like you can never be good enough. That's the message of the leader. That's the message of the controlling abusive partner in a in a domestic relationship that's that's, you know, bad, that's abusive. And so what what happens is you you become you know, just completely caught up in in a in a relationship or a group 
uh, where you lose your ability to critically think and analyze and you become isolated from uh, people that can give you more accurate feedback, that can give you context. And you don't realize it, but you're being pulled in deeper and deeper. And uh, there's a lot of deception. And the leader is not going to admit what he or she is doing any more than the abusive spouse or partner is going to admit, yeah, I'm manipulating you. I'm exploiting you. I'm taking advantage of you. And uh, this happens to people every day. There, I mean, one third of American women have been involved in abusive controlling relationships. And I write about this in my book because it's so important to understand that the tools that cult leaders use are the same tools that abusive controlling uh, partners or spouses use as well. Do you ever worry that like your work and Margaret Singer and Lifton's work could be used as a how to? Well, absolutely, it's been used as a how-to. I think uh, Keith Ranieri, who was recently convicted of multiple felonies in New York, and I testified against him uh, in court, uh, he, I think, read about persuasion techniques, thought reform, and I've encountered other cult leaders that have done the same. I mean, some of them uh, basically uh, reinvent the wheel and they just use things. And then if it works, they keep it. If it doesn't, they eliminate it. And they eventually realize that, hey, this is what works. And what works is uh, fits the uh, paradigm of thought reform or coercive persuasion. And they may not have read about it, but they have arrived at the same conclusion. Uh, kind of like uh, pyramids being built in Central America or like pyramids being uh, that were built in Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians didn't come to Central America, but they both arrived at the same kind of architectural conclusion to create a great monument. Uh, the same thing is true of cult leaders that figure out on their own without reading how to manipulate people. But I think that a good deal of them Keith Ranieri is an example. I mean, he basically just copied Scientology. He even used the same verbiage in in his uh, study manual. He would call uh, people that were negative, suppressive people, and he would talk about reaching a level of clear. That's Scientology jargon. He copied it straight straight up from Scientology. Wow, I've noticed too that you've um, quoted. And source Robert Cialdini, especially for uh, discussing the programming and things like that. Have, have you worked with him directly by chance? Yeah, I've met, I've met Bob. You know, Bob and I, uh, you know, I grew up in Arizona. And, of course, Bob was a professor at Arizona State University in Tempe. And I grew up in Phoenix. And Bob and I uh, have been in touch with each other very early in my career in 1983 when, when Bob uh, first uh, – came out with the book Influence, right. uh, he and I were in a documentary for Post Newsweek called In the Name of God. And at that time, Bob was being asked to explain how televangelists could manipulate people uh, through influence techniques to get money out of them. And um, I was also interviewed, uh, and it was the first time that uh, I became aware of of Robert Cialdini. And of course, his book, Influence, which identifies the six primary principles of influence, mm. 
for example, uh, the use of authority, the rule of reciprocity, uh, you know, and and we were compliant with people we like, liking. Uh, Bob did the same thing that Robert Lifton did. He popped the hood on the vehicle of influence and identified its components, what makes it work. Uh, and Robert J. Lifton did the same thing with thought reform. Uh, but with what Cialdini has done is he's he's identified things that can be good, they can be used for good, or they can be used for bad. And uh, uh, nowadays, Bob likes to talk about how they can be used for good. But back in the 80s and the 90s, Bob at times would talk about how they could be used for bad. Sure. Plus, if I recall, his book was a slow burn. Like it it started off, it, it didn't sell super well to begin with. And then over time, it just got discovered and got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, if you look at Amazon, sometimes, uh, you know, that book's been out a long time and it's sold, I think, more than a million copies. Oh, easily. And <laughs> it's just a seminal book. Oh, yeah. And 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 Bob now, you know, he he's really kind of all about talking about influence techniques in a positive way. Uh, for example, um, you know, the rule of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. If somebody does something for you, you feel obligated to return the favor. Now, that can be a very good guiding principle that don't sure. be a selfish person. If somebody helps you out, be open to returning that favor. And that people that don't uh, follow the rule of reciprocity are kind of like uh, selfish uh, people that are not team players and right. you can't network with them. Uh, that's the positive way of looking at it. The negative way is in an abusive controlling relationship or, or a destructive cult, you're made to feel that someone did something for you when they really didn't at all. That was the Moonies, right? Gaslighting you and they're deceptive and they make you feel like, gee, without me, you wouldn't have another life in reincarnation or without me, you wouldn't have salvation or without me, no one would love you. And that's just, a, you know, it's not true. And they're they're playing a game with you. And then you feel, oh, they've given me all this. I owe them. And then you keep paying them back endlessly. And that's using the rule of reciprocity in a very negative way. That's what the Moonies did originally, right? Well, yeah, the Reverend Moon, uh, he and by the way, I just blogged an article about how the Moon group is still shining. <laughs> the moons, the moons are still shining. They they have a lot of money. They they dominate the sushi market in the United States. Uh, Reverend Moon created a sushi empire, which his family inherited after his death at ninety two, a few years back. And they're staging events in Vegas. Uh, they have uh, recently created an NGO that has been recognized by the United Nations, one of Reverend Moon's sons. And that's just in the last week or so. Hmm. So so don't think that the the so-called Moonies kind of evaporated. They are big. Reverend Moon left a legacy, an empire that more or less is worth more than a billion dollars. And hmm. and he accumulated that by claiming to be the Messiah and saying that he would uh, bring peace to the world. Of course, he died, and all he did was he he bought a piece of the world. <laughs> he owns the New Yorker Hotel in Manhattan. I I think maybe, you know, that's one piece he's got. 
and, you know, he was just basically this guy who claimed that he was uh, God's messenger, that he had absolutely exclusive uh, uh the ex- he was the exclusive voice for God on earth, and that through him you could uh, achieve salvation that you could not achieve through any other organization. And so he set himself up as a gatekeeper for heaven, for God, and he would isolate people on these, these camps. And he would do, uh, I think, the same thing that the North Koreans did to POWs. And I do think that he knew about that because he had dealt with Korea Korea. He himself is a South Korean, and mm. I believe he was in involved in North Korea and, and has been involved for some time. So I think he was very knowledgeable about the techniques that they used, and he employed them to break down and, in my opinion, dominate the minds of the people that he recruited. And then they'd hit the streets and fundraise for him. Uh, a good um, uh, Unification Church, which is the official name of the Moonies, mm-hmm. the Unification Church fundraisers would do a $200 a day, easy. So their fundraising teams would raise literally millions of dollars a day, a week. And that filled the coffers of Reverend Moon and enriched his family. Now, continuing with the Unification Church, one of your counterparts or contemporaries, I guess, came out of there. Um, Stephen Hassan, do you have any thoughts on him? Well, Steve Hassan, uh, yeah, he was a member of the Unification Church uh, for, I think, uh, two years or less. And then uh, he was a fundraiser and he would be in a mobile fundraising team. And uh, then he was uh, deprogrammed. His family hired a, a team, and they deprogrammed Steve. And uh, then he became uh, an anti-cult activist, and he himself became a deprogrammer and helped to deprogram Moonies. Uh, and then he branched out into other groups and uh, uh, continued with his education and uh, became a mental health professional. Okay. I heard of him through the Teal Swan um podcast yeah um my my feeling is uh i i have to say there that i'm sad to say this that uh the fees that he charges for intervention work are pretty steep and i've had a number of complaints about that and he's been the subject of complaints regarding his licensing board in massachusetts so though i know steve and and have worked with him back in the 80s and have attended conferences with him. And I I I I think he did, he has done good work, but I'm concerned about the kind of fees that he charges and the complaints that he's generated in um, recent years. Hmm. OK, well, that's interesting to hear. Now, I want to go and kind of divert a little to the silly because I'm a runner and you have mentioned in an interview that there is a cult based on running. I can't let that go. What is that? Oh, that was a group in Colorado. Uh, and I, I would have to go to my database to look it up. But there was a guru, uh, and he was basically a running guru. And I think it was around Boulder, the Denver area. Mm-hmm. And uh, he created a group based on running and they would run in races and everything. And they lived communally. They followed this leader, uh, 
assiduously and he controlled their lives and their families would complain about it. And uh, it was called uh, the running cult. And uh, but they call themselves that. (laughs) uh, No, people would call it. (laughs) But I I think it was largely uh, identified with the leader. Um, Let me let me see if I can find the name of. Okay, (laughs) after the. Look on the database. You know, it is funny because I do know that some of the professional teams, and I'll discuss this while we're doing it, do have an almost communal type of living. Um, you know, the high-level professional athletes, they go to camps. And, I got it. Yes, sir. What is it? The 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 running cult, the so-called running cult, uh, is the actual name for it is Divine mad, Madness. And it was and it was led by a self-styled philosopher coach by the name of Mark Tizer. Truth in advertising. And, and, <laughs> and so you can you can find information on it. There have been a number of articles written about Tizer and the group and how they would uh, run the rugged trails of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And the point is, is that Divine Madness uh, was not based on religion. It was based on running, and it was based right. on him being your quote coach. Uh, but he, he he had no boundaries, and he controlled the people's uh, the people that in that were in this group, Divine Madness. He he allegedly controlled their lives to the point uh, that families complained, and that the group was considered a personality cult. You know, I, and I, I want to dig in a little bit because I think this is important. Um, there's always a question of how would I ever fall into a cult? And I had was starting to say about some of the professional running groups and training groups will go into a camp and in those camps, they're, you know, very strict diets and things like that. Certain workouts, everything's prescribed to them. And a lot of lifestyle elements kind of leak into this too, when they're training at a high level, is it possible that this running cult may have started out as kind of a training camp and then just more and more it almost slips into a cult type of situation. Have you seen that happen before? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, a Synanon is a really good example, which was a drug rehabilitation community started by Charles Diedrich, who, who um, was known for his motto. Uh, Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Oh, wow. And he had been in AA. He 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 was a reformed alcoholic, and he created a community called Synanon in California that became very famous. And he helped people to get off drugs, to stop drinking. And 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 initially, uh, many people felt that he was doing a, a great community service. And in fact, he got nonprofit status. But gradually, it morphed into uh, what was a personality cult. And people were basically worshiping Charles Diedrich. And he was their, if you will, their God. And whatever he said was right was right. Whatever he said was wrong was wrong. And there was no legitimate reason to leave the group. There was no reason to criticize him. He he was always right. His critics were always wrong. And, uh, you know, a number of people left the group and they were hurt by Diedrich and, and things escalated to an incredible level where there was gross abuse within the community. And uh, a, an attorney, Paul Morantz, represented uh, former members at, in, a per, in personal injury lawsuits. 
And Diedrich became so uh, obsessed with former members and criticism that it led to a a rattlesnake being put in in Paul Morantz's mailbox. Oh, and, wow. and Paul's a friend of mine, and he almost died as a result of that and still has uh, residual uh, effects from almost dying in a hospital as a result of that snake bite. And Diedrich then eventually pled guilty to uh, criminal charges and the group lost its tax exempt status and it was shut down. But that's an example of a group that started out ostensibly as a good thing, a community to help people uh, kick uh, addiction and, and get well. And it turned into something entirely different. And what it what it really boils down to is the leader. Does the leader have checks and balances? Does the leader have accountability? Is there a democratic process? Uh, how how transparent is the group financially and and in its uh, workings? And if you're in a group and the leader has absolute dictatorial power, you could be in trouble. That's interesting. And you do make a special point, I have noticed in many, many interviews, et cetera, of always saying destructive cult. Are you defining that specifically? Because there are things like... Um, I can't help but think of like uh, the Grateful Dead having a cult following, but yeah. I don't feel like Jerry Garcia ever acted like a cult leader in any way other than just go play music and people just happen to follow him. Well, I think that was a personality cult, the Grateful Dead. And what did they call them? The Deadheads. And these people would go from venue to venue following Gar Garcia and the group as a a traveling audience, and he was playing to the same people for years, and he got very rich from it. But I, I don't think that he wanted to hurt anybody or he did hurt anybody. And uh, some of those people ended up following the the band Fish, and mm -hmm. maybe they should be called Fish Heads. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but there are groups that are, that are cults that are benign. For example, uh, the devotees of the architect Paulo Soleri. Uh, Soleri created a community uh, north of Phoenix called Arcosante, famous for their bronze bells. And he had his own uh, philosophy called arcology. And people were deeply devoted to Paulo Soleri and, and, uh, till his death. And he was the, uh, the, the icon of Arcosante. And, and people were very devoted to him, but he didn't hurt anybody. And it was, if if you will, it was a benign uh, cult. The, and there's Soul Cycle, there's CrossFit. I was going to ask about that. Uh, and they have CrossFit has a very charismatic man that created that business, and he's idolized by many of the people in CrossFit. And I would see that as being another example of a benign cult that does no harm. And then you could look at Apple. When mm -hmm. Steve Jobs was alive and running the company, I mean, it was very much a personality driven operation and people idolized Jobs. And when he would come out all dressed in black and present the latest thing, people would it was almost like you were in a church. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. Everyone was hanging on his every word. Uh, but he made a lot of people rich, and he produced good products that we all uh, appreciate. And there's and a board so, of directors and SEC. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, there there was accountability, but you could see it as a a personality cult. Sure, uh, you could see Apple as a personality cult. I and and also the founder of Zappos mm. has been. Um, people have said, "Gee, he's kind of created a a personality cult or a kind of subculture that he dominates with his ideas." And there's even housing provided for employees of Zappos. So, but I would see all of those examples as benign cults. And, and, and what would define a destructive cult is that it exploits people. There's a pattern of, of exploitation that is mandated by the group. It isn't by happenstance, it's by design. And the leader has mandated it. For example, Moses David Berg, who headed the children of God, wanted women to go out and become hookers for Christ and <laughs> raise money for the group. And they would uh, he was basically a, a cult leader slash pimp. And people would go out, women, and they would sell their bodies and bring the money back to the group. Or they would possibly recruit a man who was interested in them sexually. The other thing is that Berg was a pedophile. He he preyed on his own family. He raped his daughter, his granddaughter. Uh, his son was sexually abused. Uh, his stepson, uh, and and it was just horrible. And he mandated this in the group so that children were systematically sexually abused in the children of God. And I've talked to many, many former members of that group. So so what you see is destructiveness that is mandated by the leadership as a, as a matter of uh, doctrine, of practice, and people are systematically hurt and exploited. Good Lord. Have you ever been tipped off to a cult and went to investigate and determine that, no, it's really not a cult? Oh, yes. Uh, that's happened to me a few times. Uh, I can I can recall uh, times where I've been retained by families and I get there and I find out that there is no cult and that the family is just refusing to accept something like, for example, uh, one time uh, it was a uh, family that when I arrived, I, I finally realized that there was just really a anger against the the possibility that a daughter was going to marry um, a man who was who was African-American and the family was white and they were accusing his church of being a cult when it wasn't as a pretense to break up the relationship. Or another example was I came out to uh, Florida and there was a, a, a young man who the family claimed was under the influence of a cult. But when I came there, it really was clear that he had had some type of breakdown and he needed to be hospitalized. And whatever he was uh, mumbling about some kind of cultic reference had nothing to do with me or my work. And it was a, a paranoid delusion that needed that he needed to be in a hospital. And so uh, there, there have been many, many times. I, I would say every week I have telephone calls from people saying, oh, this is a cult, that's a cult, and it's just not at all. Uh, and they're just uh, – uh, they're, they're hyperventilating over nothing. With somebody like you just mentioned with the possible schizophrenic ties, do you have 
relationships with um, different psychiatrists and people in the medical field to maybe hand off uh, people you've helped? Because I imagine you can't just say, okay, my work is done, all is well. Uh, yes, I have frequently worked with uh, psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, social workers, uh, child protective services. So I, a lot of times I'm, I'm not working alone. I'm working with those, those type of helping professionals. And at the Cult Education Institute, which is uh, at culteducation.com, there's a whole section under getting help, and it's called recovery. And there's a recovery resource directory with the names of uh, mental health professionals across the United States who are licensed, who uh, help people, and who have experience dealing with former cult members. So I very often refer people to those type of professionals who can help them because they're, they've left a particular group. Uh, for example, Nexium. There have been many people that have contacted me that have left Nexium, and they're looking for uh, a mental health uh, professional, a counselor, a therapist who can help them to unpack their experience and sort through things. But they don't want to go to somebody who has no experience dealing with cults. They want someone who's not only a mental health professional, but who has experience helping former cult members. Well, that's important, too, because there could be some judging involved if they went to the wrong person or they may feel judged. Uh, not not only that, but um, it, a lot of times what I've encountered and it, it's sad is that a mental health professional has not de dealt with ex-cult members and will diagnose or try to pound, uh, if you will, a square peg into a round hole. Uh, they will try to fit the cult ex cult member into what they know, into their into their uh, wheelhouse, and and in reality, what they should re uh, recognize is that this person uh, may have uh, PTSD, uh, you know, post traumatic uh, stress as a result of a cult experience, and that many of the of the things the the, the Issues that they're looking at are common issues for ex-cult members who have been traumatized. And instead of trying to fit them into their wheelhouse, they should uh, open up and do some really good research and reading and familiarize themselves with the ways in which uh, mental health professionals who have worked with many former cult members have, have provided counseling and therapy. That actually leads into another question I had, which is, are there any of your peers or any situation where you kind of have the situation where if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail, where you could be so in steep that everywhere you look is a cult? Uh, you know what? Uh, I've heard people say that about about Steve has. <laughs> okay. And I've heard heard them heard them uh, try to say that about me as well. Uh, but I think that. You have to make distinctions. For example, I don't call Jehovah's Witnesses a cult. I've and the that. reason is because they don't have a single absolute totalitarian leader. They did when uh, the group was founded. Charles Taze Russell, uh, the founder, was that leader. And then he was succeeded by Judge Rutherford, who was also a leader uh, of that ilk. And at that time, I think they would fit. 
the profile of a destructive cult. But they they evolved over more than 100 years. And today they have a governing body of about a dozen old men that have absolute totalitarian power over the group. And and they're like uh, uh, self-appointed. Uh, I mean, the governing body will bring people in as people pass away to replace an empty seat. Uh, but it's not a, a personality-driven cult as it once was. So I kind of make those distinctions, and I, I, I look at groups, and I could say, well, that is a destructive authoritarian group, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, but they are not a destructive cult because they no longer have the single most salient feature of a destructive cult, which is a charismatic leader that becomes an object of worship. They've evolved past that. You could say they were a cult, but they're not a cult now. And so I think that when you um, label a group a destructive cult, you should uh, really look to see that all the features are there and that you've gone through that checklist and satisfied that definition. I kind of feel like I'm lucky. I had to look because when I was a kid and seven, my mother changed religions on us. And later on, a friend of mine said, oh, yeah, you were with that. Your family was with that group. Well, I never really got into it. I would sit there and read Stephen King in church. So I wasn't really deep, but it was the Worldwide Church of God. Oh, wow. Herbert Armstrong. Uh-huh. And I had and to look Garner, it up. He was on your side. Garner Ted. <laughs> so if you don't mind sharing, what is the story with them? Because like I said, I didn't, I, fortunately, I guess I was a hard-headed kid and I didn't pay much attention. Well, the story is Herbert Armstrong, who lived to be pretty old. In fact, uh, he, he, I think he lived to be in his 90s. Uh, he created a, a, a cult, you know, I mean, it was a group that worshipped him as a prophet. He had a radio program, he had a magazine, and it was a very big group. There were probably, you know, 60 to 100,000 members at one point. And Herbert Armstrong claimed, like typically many cult leaders, that his group alone had the truth. Oh, yeah. uh, that he alone had the perfect combination of doctrinal beliefs to be the true and only uh, organization that you could uh, serve God through. And uh, this was a combination of really kind of Jehovah's Witnesses not believing in the Trinity, believing in uh, a, a kind of modalism or oneness doctrine, uh, and at the same time, also believing in the feasts and festivals of the Old Testament. And so you they, they would have the Feast of the Tabernacles. They would uh, have all these events. And there was a lot of tithing. Uh, there was what they called the triple tithe. There was the 10 percent tithe. There was the tithe to tithe to the widows and orphans fund. And then there was a, a tithe. Uh, every so many years, uh, in addition to that, to attending these feasts and festivals, which were expensive. And so Herbert Armstrong got very rich and he bought a lot of property and he flew around in, in, a, in a jet and he would do uh, photo ops with world leaders. And eventually he died and his son was involved in a sex scandal, Garner Ted who's in Texas, who was in Texas. And so he didn't take over. But then a guy by the name of Joseph Takach 
took over and then started liquidating the group's assets, changing the group's doctrines. And uh, there was an article written uh, that I believe I have archived. It, it was it, it was titled something like Honey, We Shrank the Church. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was about how Joseph Takach, uh, in his effort to mainstream Worldwide Church of God, had changed the doctrines to the point that everybody was bailing. And now there are a lot of splinter groups all over the U.S., that are led by various charismatic leaders that claim to have inherited the mantle of Herbert Armstrong that could be seen as like little mini personality cults. But okay. anyway, that's kind of the history of worldwide to, to some extent. Okay. I wanted to ask you about another one. I had a, a previous um, guest on, she worked in an adult film and wanted to confirm she was Seventh-day Adventist. Well, Seventh-day Adventists started out as the Millerites, and this guy named Miller predicted the end of the world would come, I think, in, uh, what was it, 1844 or something. And it didn't happen. And that was a crisis for the group. And then uh, when they were following Miller, I think you could say it was a personality-driven cult, and Miller was a prophet, and he was an object of worship. And then he, he uh, in an interesting twist— a woman, Ellen White, became his uh, successor, hmm. and she kind of uh, managed to spin uh, the end of the world doctrine into, well, something happened in heaven, but not on earth, and we can still be good Seventh-day Adventists. And so they continued, and Ellen White uh, was a prolific writer, and she wrote um, about diet, exercise, and of course, Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians, uh -huh. uh, and they celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday, not Sunday, like most Protestants, Catholics, and or, or Christians. And, uh, and they also uh, had some other peculiar doctrines. And, and, but gradually, what happened with Seventh-day Adventism, which is very interesting, is that it really became mainstream. And today, I would regard them as, a, you know, just a religion with an interesting history. In fact, they found out that Ellen White had plagiarized a number of her writings. <laughs> and, and, and rather than uh, try to defend her and ignore this, they, they labeled this the borrowings of Sister White. And, and well they kind of, in a very pragmatic, <laughs> re reasonable way, work their way out of that. And, and there is transparency, uh, democratic due, due process, uh, checks and balances in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And really, they've pretty much mainstreamed, and I would regard them as an interesting and uh, uh, really, for the most part, I can't see – I don't get complaints about them. A positive religious organization. Hmm. Okay, kind of like Mormons, maybe? Well, the Mormons are a bit different. I think they still, uh, the Adventists would not make the same exclusive claims that the Mormons make. 
uh, for and and uh, again a similar history where you've got Joseph Smith, he's the prophet, object of worship. He comes up with the Book of Mormon, which is a is a fictional work that he claims is historical that reflects things that never happened in the Western Hemisphere with no proof whatsoever. The Mormons accept it as as history, but you know it's really fiction. And then he dies. Uh, you know he's hung, lynched. Uh, by a mob uh, because of some of the things that he did in Nauvoo, Illinois, which was a city that he created and ruled over. And that made people in Illinois very nervous because he had a large private army uh, that was well armed. And uh, things went on in Nauvoo that really upset people, polygamy. Uh, and uh, and Joseph Smith uh, became very uh, authoritarian and smashed uh, the printing press of, of a newspaper in Nauvoo that had criticized how much power he had. And so Smith was lynched, and then he was succeeded by his son that created the a reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which still exists under another name, and then Brigham Young, claim to inherit his mantle. That's the big church that we know as the LDS today. And then he told them the promised land is out there, and it turned out to be Utah. And they basically carved out a, a religious empire in Utah that exists to this day. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Mormons went from uh, an absolute leader. Uh, the last absolute leader they really had was Brigham Young. And then after that, They had the first council of the presidency, the first quorum of the 70s, second quorum of the 70s, and power devolved. And it still is an ecclesiastical authority kind of group where you don't have the people in the pews electing uh, boards and, and having that kind of transparency and checks and balances. But Mormonism has evolved into um a a much more mainstream religion but i i think they still make these same exclusive claims uh for example uh the current president of the church doesn't want you to call them mormons he wants you to call them uh the church of jesus christ of the latter day saints and that's a claim mm-hmm. as opposed to a name and what they're trying to say is look we're it we're the exclusive uh truth, we're the highest level. So they still have that baggage, whereas the Adventists are much more mainstream and 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 tolerant of, of other religions and they're not saying we're the we're the elite, we're the only ones. Ah, okay. So big, big difference on that one. Now yeah. I'm gonna pivot a little bit. One of my uh um another person I've interviewed is uh, Ken Lanning who helped establish the uh, sex crimes unit in the FBI uh, behavioral is I think the behavioral science unit when he did it, then it became behavioral analysis later. And it was very interesting talking to him because I brought up cults and things and he's of the mindset that uh, he doesn't care. He, as he put it, cult, not a cult, not my problem. Are they breaking the law or are they not breaking the law? So you brought up, you know, like, cults where they're, you know, uh, practicing pedophiles, obviously he would go after that particular crime or a financial crime or things like that. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I was, I've been involved in the prosecution and of, of cult leaders, you know, I mean, I was just recently, I was involved in, uh, 
testifying as a witness in uh, the prosecution of Keith Raniere, the so-called sex cult leader of Nexium, who mutilated women by branding them with his initials with a, a cauterizing iron. And uh, he had a doctor in the group that did this to the women. And uh, it was just horrible. The sexual abuse, uh, uh, sex trafficking, uh, racketeering. I mean, he was convicted, I think, on seven felonies. So this is an example of somebody who broke the law. He he was involved in tax fraud. He was involved in money laundering. He was involved in all kinds of criminal activity. And he also had five co-defendants, including Claire Bronfman, a Seagram's uh, liquor heiress who gave him a lot of money, and her sister, Sarah, who was not indicted, but who also gave uh, Ranieri money. And there were four other co-defendants. So when a group commits crimes and they cross that line, Mm -hmm. and there have been a number of groups that have done that, that's when the law becomes involved. If they hurt families, they break up marriages, they traumatize people through psychological and emotional abuse, that may not be a crime, but it really scars people. And it can, it can, it can scar them for the rest of their life. But, but when, uh, Mr. Lanning or, or the FBI become involved, that's when the group has gone beyond just affecting people's lives emotionally and psychologically, but they're actually committing crimes. And then they're prosecuted for those crimes in, we hope, though sometimes it takes a really long time for uh, law enforcement to act because, uh, you know, it's it, it can be kind of a, a very difficult situation for them, especially if the group has tax exempt 501c3 religious nonprofit status. They feel like, oh, it's a church. I better watch out. I better not get involved in that because of First Amendment issues uh, and church and state separation. Yeah, it seems really tricky. And it's funny you mentioned that. That reminded me of a, another cult family where I guess it's good if you can find an heiress to hook up with. But Mel Lyman out of Boston. Are you familiar with that family? Uh, no, not not. Uh, how? What happened there? Oh, OK, it's interesting that Mel Lyman was kind of the East Coast family at the same time as Manson's family. Oh, interesting. And they still exist today, even though he died like in. His case is weird. He died in 77 or 78, and people found out like five years later. Nobody's ever seen a body. They don't know where he is. But um, he, How do you spell it? I'm, I'm just going to look him up on the database. His sure, name um, is Mel. Um, L-Y-M-A-N. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's, he's in the database, and yeah, they do compare him to Charles Manson, exactly as you said. And... Uh, there, there are a number of articles about him, but I, I had, I had not, it just didn't come right to my head. Oh, no worries. But yeah, his, um, his quote family, I guess, is still around. They ran a, a run a construction company, and they have giant real estate holdings. Seems to be a pattern, right. you know, Scientology real estate holdings. Right, Eric. The cult business is a really good business. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, if you can get a group of people to work for free or for very little, basically room and board, you can make a lot of money. 
I mean, I could go down a list of groups that have millions and, uh, and millions of dollars in assets, and it's all predicated on, you know, having a cheap labor force and and providing no benefits, inadequate pay, payment of wages, uh, really bad working conditions. I mean, it's like sweatshops. And they get away with it because, quote, they're a religion, end quote, and they get religious nonprofit status. And so they, they get real estate and they remodel it and then they flip it and they make money that way. They open up restaurants or, or cafes and they have all the people that staff it that are members of their group and they provide minimal compensation, no, no health insurance, no dental plan. Nothing. And they just keep making money off of these people. You know, Margaret Singer once said to me, uh, she said, you know, Rick, you, know, you can look at a at a, a cult leader as a con man. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference between a con man and a cult leader is a con man runs a, a scam, grabs the money and then typically leaves town and works another mark, another right. person, a cult leader runs the same con on the same people indefinitely. And you can make a lot of money doing this. I mean, there are all these these cult leaders that control millions and millions of dollars. I mean, for example, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who has been called a cult leader, who died in his 90s in a palace in Europe, uh, it, it's reported that he may have accumulated as much as $9 billion wow. through Transcendental Meditation, TM. And, and of course, Scientology, when L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986, his estate was valued at $600 million. And then David Miscavige, who was uh, an underling that was kind of uh, a messenger for L. Ron Hubbard, he ended up uh, going from gatekeeper to dictator for life of Scientology. And Scientology now has an estimated value, I've heard, of, of at least $3 billion. Uh, some people say they have a billion in cash. So we're talking about people accumulating enormous money running these kind of that we call cults. Speaking of money, I want to pivot on that. A friend of mine who is also in the, the Unstructured Group asked a really good question that he wanted to put forth, which is essentially, so cults seem to prey on individuals that are looking, quote, to belong or find their place. But strangely, the modern MLM model invites super ambitious individuals to become, quote, entrepreneurs. Why has society focused to demonize more of the religious cults versus these MLM cults? Well, look, multi-level marketing schemes can be cult-like or they can be full-blown cults. Keith Ranieri, who is sitting over in federal detention waiting to be sentenced in September, going to get a really stiff sentence. He was an MLM guru before he was a uh, self-improvement seminar selling guru. Uh, he ran a, um, an MLM called Consumer Byline that was sued out of existence by a number of state attorney generals. So can a, a, a MLM be it like, run like a cult? Yes, it can. And even if it is not run like a cult, that is, it doesn't have an absolute dictatorial leader that is an object of worship, uh, the, the element of coercive persuasion, deception, uh, influence techniques being used to exploit people 
and ultimately do damage to them financially. And it, and it can be in their family life, uh, in their work, in their career, in their education. I get complaints about MLMs all the time. So uh, I, I have a, a section, for example, on Amway, a section on Herbalife within the Cult Education uh, Institute uh, database. So th- there are, I think that's a very valid point. And there, there are many different types of, of cults. They're not necessarily religious. They can be based on therapy, politics, uh, a commercial MLM scheme, uh, running, as we talked about, mm-hmm. Mark Tizer. Uh, so there, there are many different things that it can be based on. Uh, for example, Keith Ranieri uh, never sought 501c3 status for Nexium. Nexium was a for-profit, uh, privately held company that mm-hmm. sold courses and training and uh, made a lot of money. And uh, Ranieri, at the time of his arrest, I think he had $9 million that he controlled in one bank account they found. And Nancy Salzman, who was uh, also arrested, who was uh, supposedly second in command, they found 500000 in cash uh, hidden in her house. Hmm. So, uh, you know, they were in business. They were making money. And as I've said, uh, this is a very lucrative business model. Uh, that is uh, exploiting people, taking advantage uh, of people, and and, and in in this kind of way. And what happens is uh, people are deceived. It's a kind of bait and switch. Nobody really understands what they're signing up for, and the leader deliberately withholds information that might upset the individual who's being targeted to be recruited because they want to pull them in. And that individual may have been brought to the group by a friend, mm. like, for example, Catherine uh, Oxenberg, uh, the actress who has been in the news because she exposed Nexium and and uh, she was formerly known for her role as Fallon in the television series Dynasty. She played Joan Collins' daughter in in that very popular series in the 80s. Her daughter, India Oxenberg, she actually introduced her to Nexium. I mean, that's how India Oxenberg became involved was through her mother mm. and her then stepfather, Casper Van Diem, the actor. And Casper Van Diem and Catherine Oxenberg realized, we want to get out of here. We don't want to be in this anymore. This is weird. And they got out. But India uh, Oxenberg continued to be involved in the group and, in fact, was abused horribly in the group. And Catherine Oxenberg had to go to great lengths, literally taking a record ball to the group, exposing it and getting authorities on board. And eventually she brought the whole thing down. She was one of the most important players in bringing this group down by exposing it publicly. Uh, But the way that she got involved was through deception, a bait and switch. The way her daughter got involved was because her mother said, hey, this is something we're doing. Would you do it? And a lot of times people get involved in these groups through uh, a romantic interest, through a family member, through a co-worker who earnestly thinks that they're helping them by bringing them into this group. And also the person who is being recruited, they may be going through a difficult 
time in their life for whatever reason. Uh, things aren't going well at work. Uh, they're going through a divorce. Uh, they're having a rough patch in school. There's something that's not quite going right in their life, and they're not feeling really good. They're feeling vulnerable, and they're looking for solutions. And so at that time, they have the bad luck that somebody comes along, maybe somebody they trust, and says, hey, this group is really great. It could help you. And we all go through bad times in our life where we're vulnerable. And, and, and so virtually anyone can be recruited into a group like this, given the right set of circumstances and timing. I've been hired to do interventions to deprogram five medical doctors, including an orthopedic surgeon, an anesthesiologist, a gastrointestinal specialist. I also was hired uh, once to uh, do an intervention to get a clinical psychologist out of a abusive controlling relationship. So this can happen to anyone, and we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that we're somehow invincible and that this only happens to crazy, stupid people. Because if we think that, then we're opening ourselves up to the possibility of being recruited because we, we think it just couldn't happen to me, and therefore we might walk into a situation that we should be wary of. Well, to wrap things up on that note, because it's always a big concern. Do you feel that algorithms, specifically like Facebook and YouTube, where they every time you click that you like something or you watch something, can you wind up leading yourself into a cult? Well, here's what I can tell you is absolutely true. You talked about Teal Swan. Uh, Teal Swan is an example of, of, of a relatively new phenomenon that I've been following very closely, and that is people who have a cult following and can be seen as a destructive cult that are completely based on the web. They recruit people through social media. They have Twitter followers. They have a Facebook page. They're very into YouTube. They have their YouTube channel where they reach people. They might even have a podcast, and people don't actually meet them. They might Skype with them. They might have some kind of Google gaggle. <laughs> then they give them money through PayPal. And so what you're seeing are people being recruited online. And we see that through ISIS, uh, you know, the Islamic State mm -hmm. that took over a good deal of Iraq and Syria, which I regarded Baghdadi and ISIS as a destructive cult. And they recruited online. And we saw radicalization happening online. And we're seeing that happen also with uh, terrorists that are uh, right-wing extremists, white supremacists in the United States that are, that are responsible for shootings and so forth, that they are being radicalized online. And this is a new phenomenon. I, I wouldn't say that it's because we're clicking on likes so much as it is this incredible information access that everyone has through any electronic device that they may have at any time, anywhere, that a destructive cult can reach through and get you. And that if you start watching their videos, following them, and getting embedded with them online, you can become a member of a destructive cult without actually physically meeting the leader. 
And many of those leaders will then reel you into a compound. There was a group led by a guy by the name of Nature Boy who created a compound in Costa Rica. And that's what he did. He would reel people in online, and then they would end up going to live with him in Costa Rica. And there was one woman from Canada, uh, from Newfoundland, that came down there, and her family became very distressed because she had a, a psychiatric history, and they were very worried about her. And the Costa Rican authorities helped them to get her out. But this is a new phenomenon that is uh, the 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 web and and social media being used by destructive cults to recruit and retain members. Wow. Now, I could talk to you all day if you haven't figured it out, but I know you have to go and film a documentary. So where can people find you? Yeah, you can find the Cult Education Institute at culteducation.com. And there you will find a database that was launched in 1996 that is probably the largest database about controversial groups and movements, some called cults, that exists on the web. You can also find my book, Cults Inside Out, on Amazon.com. You can download it through Kindle. But there's an enormous amount of information on the database that is there free to the public and a message board that is probably one of the largest and oldest online where people share their experiences and talk about what happened to them in destructive cults. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, Here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in The Village People, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible, its name is a web address, www.jones.show. What do you have when you want to combine two words because you're too lazy to spit them both out? A portmanteau with Eric Hunley. Brexit, Benefer, Brangelina, Infotainment, Infomercial, and Podcast. What do these all have in common? Well, they're portmanteaus, sometimes called Frankenwords. These were first used by Lewis Carroll in Through the Looking Glass, and we are surrounded by them everywhere we look. This new show, Portmanteau, will cover a new portmanteau every episode. They'll be short and look into the history of the word of the day. These may be well-known, or they may be brand new. They may even be suggested by you. Be sure to subscribe today and join in on the fun.